pretty powerful stuff. Well, we're right into Advent now, aren't we? Um, I was going to share my Christmas tradition, one of my, well, one of my Christmas traditions. traditions. Um, I, I feel like it is uh, getting to Coles at 4.58, just before it's about to close. I think they close at 6 now, so 5.58, going, where's the cream? Um, it's always the cream. That's a tradition. Go and find the cream at the latest point of time that you can before Coles closes. I don't know if anyone else has got that tradition. Um, maybe it's just more of a disorganisation than a tradition. But we are right into Advent now. We're right into this, this time of preparation, of preparation for the light. Uh, the tree is up, which is fantastic. We've got a tree up. Has everyone got tree ups at, tree, their trees up at home? Anyone? A few of you? Anyone not got a tree up yet? Few, few as well. Yeah, few haven't got a tree up. That's right. Um, uh, the plans for Christmas Day are starting. I, well, I hope they've started. If you haven't got plans for Christmas Day, um, maybe find someone else who has got plans and you can join together, something like that. Um, we've actually got Solari's parents coming home, uh, coming to our house today. Uh, we're going away for Christmas this year, so we're not going to be around. So we've got to do all the Christmases before next week. So we've got Solari's family coming this week. And so <clears throat> it's really exciting. We're going to have them for lunch. Um, so hopefully it's going to be a short sermon so we can get home and cook the meal. But, but I don't know if this happens in your household, but when the family is about to descend for Christmas, I, I don't know if this is it's the same thing that happens. It's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's always calm, peaceful times that you lead up. Is that right? <laughs> Chaos. Panic. Uh, we get into cleaning overdrive. And it's all hands on deck. The vacuum passes through hands uh, until finally the, the guests are coming down the driveway. Quick, put the vacuum away. Pretend that we've been like this the whole time. And, uh, and finally to get through the door and you breathe a sigh of relief. Christmas is happening. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of that chaos. I don't know if anyone else has that. We used to have a cleaner when we were at Newport Baptist Church. Um, we used to have this lady that come in and would clean for us because it stopped that. And she was wonderful. She was wonderful. But if you've ever had a cleaner, you'll know that the day before the cleaner comes, you clean. <laughs> I did not understand this process at all. So we, I would continually say, why are we cleaning when the cleaner's coming? But we're tidying. There's a difference, tidying and cleaning. And she was incredible. She would rearrange our house and do all these sort of things. But we loved coming to home to this transformed house that she'd bring. But, but we had to prepare the way for this cleaner to come and clean. I didn't know that was what we had to do. But you know what? That preparing the way is what Advent's about. We got there. We got there. Um, making way for the thing that is to come. Now, in ancient times, when a king was coming to a city, he would send someone before him to sort of herald his coming, to announce that he would be arriving soon. And the herald would go around the city and he'd find uh, all the leaders of the city and tell them to, to, that the king is coming. Be prepared. The king is coming. He should be here any day. Clean up all that is wrong with your city. Be prepared for this special arrival of the king. The herald would also serve as sort of like the city inspector, going around and making a list of things that need to be fixed up. Oh, that light bulb's out. Well, they probably don't have light bulbs. Um, that torch is flickering. I don't know how it works. Um, the roads are a bit rough, or this is not happening all right. Um, get, get, those, get those dirt mounds, you know, the, the big mounds you've got over there. Can you just flatten them out? Clean up the city. Get rid of the garbage lying around. Round up the criminals and put them somewhere safe while the king's here. Fix the roads. Make them smooth. Make them straight. Make sure the town is prepared 
for the king. Because if it was an embarrassment for the king to come into the city, the people of the city would be embarrassed, and that city would be embarrassed. It would be an insult to the king to have a town that wasn't properly prepared for his arrival. As we look into Luke chapter 3 that Solari read for us, we can see a whole lot of that going on. The king is coming. He's, sent a, uh, he's got a herald to announce that the king is coming. His arrival is imminent. And we know the king, of course, is, is Jesus. But already in the Luke of, book of beginning of Luke, we hear the, the angel tell Mary in Luke 1.32 that her son would sit on the throne of his father David and he would reign over Israel forever and the kingdom would be no end. So we know that Jesus was going to be special. When Jesus was born, the angels came proclaiming his birth, where these, these men came from the east and gave him presents fit for a king. But the herald was also there as well. The one who will pronounce his coming is John the Baptist. The one that's baptizing, preparing the way. The herald that is making sure that people know that the king is coming. John's preparing the way. So John the Baptist prepares the way by doing what a herald does. He proclaims the message. It's a proclamation of God's message. So John the Baptizer's message is that people need to repair their lives and prepare for the coming of the king. And he does this by calling people to repent and be baptized. And in Luke, that's what we read in Luke 3, 1 to 6. John is preaching a message, a message that the people need to repair their lives and prepare for Christ's coming. And so John calls the people to do one thing or two things. He says, repent and be baptized. Because genuine repentance leads to open obedience. And that leads to personal renewal. So let's pray and we'll see how this renewal comes through from God. Our Lord, this morning as we listen, as we um, engage in your word, may you help us to understand it in a way that leads to our renewal. Help us to, 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 to put it into practice. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your word. May it be a blessing today. Amen. So three things that we're going to look at. First thing is that God's timing is perfect. And we'll see that in Luke 3, chapter verses 1 to 2. If you've got your Bibles, you might want to keep it open there. At the start of the passage we have just read in Luke chapter 3, we have a, a whole lot of names that Solari did really well to get through. Thanks, Solari. Uh, and, but Luke just doesn't put them in to start to help um, uh, us poor uh, English speaking people stumble through it on a Sunday morning. He puts it in for a reason. He's strategic in mentioning these names because it's, it actually dates the event. It puts a date to the event. It's like a, a GPS. So when you've got a GPS and you're in your car, it's sort of hitting a whole lot of satellites. If it only hits one satellite, you go, well, I don't really know where I am in relation to anything else. But if it hits 12 satellites, all of a sudden you can coordinate exactly where the car is. It's sort of like that. Luke puts out all these names... So that in history, the historians go back and go, oh, that person was here, that person was here, they crossed over here, they did this here, and, that, and can actually date where it was. So they come up, the historians have come up with a date of around AD 27, AD 28. Um, so, so they know it's a GPS system, uh, early GPS system to have that many names. 
But the names are a little more than just the GPS system for dating um, where he was. Um, in fact, it tells us that the Jews at that time were in a bit of strife. They probably slumped pretty badly. Um, they're being ruled by foreign rulers. And their own religious leaders were using their power more to increase their own wealth and authority. It wasn't a good stage for the Israelite nation, the Jewish nation. So in this time, Jesus is born into it. A time where Israel's life was vulnerable, where their leaders had been taken over by foreign leaders and there was a real sort of corrupt nature around. Things are not well. It's been 400 years since the prophets have been telling them that something was going to happen. So finally, someone comes in with some sort of vision and direction. But over that 400 years, they've, they've wandered. They've wavered. They haven't quite got there. They've gotten complacent. They've decided that I'll do my own thing. So it's probably no fluke that Jesus was born, well, I know it's not a fluke because God does it all, um, that was born into this time and climate. But before the Messiah can come, there was one who must prepare for him. You know, God's timing is perfect, isn't it? Maybe you can pinpoint a time in your life where God's timing was just right for you. Maybe it was the unexpected God showing up at that right time and, and you go, wow, God's timing is perfect. Sometimes it doesn't fit into our timing. We go, God, where is your timing? You've got it all wrong, but oh, actually, that's my timing. God's timing is perfect. And Luke, in the way that he's written this, is telling us this was the right time. The right time to prepare the way for the Messiah. The second thing we learn is that God uses each of us. He uses you and I. The names in verse 1 and 2 are there for a reason. And, and in this, this list of names, we have an emperor, a governor, three tetrarchs, two religious high priests. In the eyes of the world, they're as important as anyone in that space. They're the most prestigious people in the land. Yet that the word of God didn't go to them. Verse 2 tells us that the word of God came to John, who was the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. It came to John the Baptist in the wilderness. So why did it go to John and not these other people? Back in the, in the Middle Ages, from about 500 to 1500 AD, men and women who wanted to hear from God would go out and live in the desert for years and years on end. They would fast and they would pray, seeking to hear from God. And they would do some weird things. One guy named Simon the Stylite, I, I don't know how I, the, the people named the Stylites, I can just imagine them wearing pretty cool stuff. Uh, he spent 37 years standing on top of a 60-foot-high pillar without coming down. That's kind of weird. And he, his only ex exercise that he did was bowing. So he'd bow down. And he did a lot of that. One, one disciple of this man, Simon the Stylite, counted 1,244 bows in one night before giving up count. <laughs> Simon himself would tie himself on top of the pillar so he wouldn't fall when he slept, so he'd have ropes holding him up and, and probably something propping him up a, a little bit because if he, if he fell, he felt like he won't hear from God. 
Now, I have to hear this. He even, uh, his ropes would, would, would cause wounds on him and sort of parasites and like maggots and stuff would get in there. It's pretty gross, but he was so adamant he would hear from God because he did this amazing thing. One time this, this maggot fell out of one of his wounds, he picked it up and he put it back in. And he said, do not despise the food that the Lord has given you. A little weird, a little weird. Now, why did he do all that? Because he wanted to be a spokesperson for God. He wanted to hear God speak through him. And he thought that if I do something, if I do something radical, totally, well, out of the ordinary, maybe God would come to him. People would come to him. They were sort of called the desert fathers, these people. Um, They were sort of the hermits of the time. And people would come to him believing that they were God's mouthpiece. People thought that these people would give them insight into God. So, do we need to tie ourselves to 60-foot pillars and uh, allow parasites to eat our flesh? No, nope. So John, he lived in the wilderness. He was probably a part of that sort of idea. Not that he stood on those pillars or anything. But he may have been labelled with the same brush as these desert fathers. He may have had the appearance of a weird uncle. (laughs) But this wasn't why he received the word of God. It wasn't about what he was wearing or about where he stood It wasn't because he ate locusts and honey. It wasn't because of his outfit of camel hair. Rather, John received the word because of two things. And you'll see it in Luke 1, verse 80. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is talking about John. Firstly, he grew strong in spirit. How how do we become strong in spirit? How do we, in ourselves, become strong in spirit? Well, firstly... You need to become strong in the word. Ephesians 6 gives us a reference to the armor of God. The only attacking piece of the armor is the sword. The rest of the armor is ultimately defense. Yet it's the sword, which is the word of God. And that's that's the attacking implement. Now, I know the Browns. Are the Browns here? They do fencing, which is pretty cool. Does anyone else do fencing? The Browns do fencing. That's pretty cool. I like that. With they, this sort of, sort of swords poking each other. I like watching it at the, uh, at the Olympics. Um, but I would think that if you're going to be a swordsman, you'd have to practice day and night, wouldn't you? You'd have to practice your craft with the sword thing. It, wouldn't just, it would be no good me going up to the Browns and go, come on, Browns, let's do this, give me a sword, and me just starting to swing it like crazy. And uh, it'd just be no good. Because I could imagine just Tim just getting in there and just, ooh, there we go. You couldn't do it aimlessly. So, so you would have to practice to become good. And that's with everything. So to become spiritually strong, you must be in the Word. You must put your spiritual practice together. Study the Word. If you're not in a connect group where you can study with other people, seek out a connect group where you can get deeper in the Word. If you can't get into a connect group or you don't have the, the space or the time or the capacity to do that, you might say, I want to find a trusted friend or another two friends that I can just meet once a fortnight in a cafe and we'll open the Word together. And we'll explore it and see what God's saying to us from it. Be in the word. He was spiritually strong. Secondly, he lived in the desert, in this wilderness. Now, being in the wilderness doesn't mean you're, you're sort of going to be automatically sort of hearing from God like that. But what it did mean is that he was physically separated from the temptations that were going on elsewhere from the trials that you might have found in the city. 
Now, it mightn't be as easy for us to sort of go, well, I can do this. I'll go out to the middle of the country and just stay there. We, we can't do that in the same way as maybe John could. However, being separate from the world means that you are making the choice actually to, to, to not engage in the worldly habits that sometimes we can get caught up in. Rather, we would align ourselves with God and God's, the things of God's kingdom. To separate from the world is, like we saw in the video, is to be a light in the darkness, a light that others can see. See, being a light in the darkness doesn't mean we run away from the dark. It actually means that we run into the dark. If we're a light to light the darkness, we have to find the darkness. It means that we stay where we are, that we make decisions based on the principles of Jesus. And quite often that's different to the principles of the world. John was in the world, in the Word, and he was in the wilderness. He studied God's Word and he lived separately from the world. John had a call on his life. He was in the Word, separated, and the Word came to him. Not to those other sort of famous people in the city. The Word came to him. And what I love about John is he didn't keep it to himself, did he? He had to share this Word because it's the most important news that anyone could hear. Get yourself ready. The Messiah is coming. That's some pretty important news. The third thing we, uh, we, we see in this, this passage is that renewal needs repentance and obedience. Luke 3, verses 3 to 6. It actually comes from Isaiah uh, chapter 40. We learn from these verses that, that the message that John's been given is actually to be the, that herald for the Messiah. The one, the spokesperson to, to see the, the Messiah coming, to prepare the way of the Lord. And the, the verses following remind the, uh, the people of the preparation that go for the coming king. We talked about it at the very start. Make straight the paths, fill up the valleys, lower the mountains, flatten out the land because the king is coming, sort out the, the crooked areas, make the rough smooth. Do what you can to make the king comfortable, even if it means changing the physical landscape. But this was no ordinary king that was coming. This was a preparation for a different king. This was preparation for the Messiah. Prepare the way of the, the Lord. For a physical king, you prepare physically, don't you? But for a spiritual king, for the Messiah, you need to prepare totally differently. We need to prepare spiritually. And verse 3 is what John uh, uh, is calling for. John is calling for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Now, this is not suggesting that, that baptism, getting baptized, is actually going to forgive your sin or, or get you into heaven or whatever it might be. We've got to remember that John's message is, is a preparation for the Messiah. Get yourself ready. Make your personal path straight. Clean up your mess. Repent. Now, that word repent means do a U-turn, a 180, literally a U-turn. Turn from the life that you set for yourself and turn back to God. Rather than doing your own thing, walk in God's way 
instead. It is a full 180-degree turn. It can't be a, uh, I'm, I'm going this way and I'll, I'll turn 150 degrees because if God's there, we start heading that way. I don't want to give up the rest of this part. I want to keep that for myself. It doesn't work. Repentance is a 180-degree turn. You don't end up at the same place if you don't turn back the 180 degrees. You can't say, I'm sorry, I'll only change that, that 150 degrees because I like that extra 30 degrees. Hopefully you'll understand maths enough to, to sort of do the calculations. I love maths. Genuine repentance means turning back to God. But it means more. It means there's got to be something that happens because of it. And that is the obedient living. Obedient living the way of God. The term John uses uh, is a baptism of repentance. It suggests that repentance will lead to obedient service. And, and that service is an outpouring of... Uh, the outpouring of that service is actually baptism. The dying to self, to become present to God. And it's symbolized by the waters of... The immersion into the waters of baptism. Does this action forgive sin? Well, taking it at face value, if you just read what you hear, you might go, all right, well, repentance plus obedience equals forgiveness of sin, because that's sort of what John says. But we know that forgiveness of sin can't be done through what we do. We can't put forgiveness of sin into some equation and make it work. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we are made clean. So what's John saying then when regarding the forgiveness of sin? The Greek word here in forgiveness um, in some translations, I don't know if you've read it in your translation, you might say remission, to cancel a debt. It's, it's the Greek word aphesis, aphesis. But uh, this idea of forgiveness doesn't fully capture what that word really means. When we think of forgiveness, we think of uh, someone that, something that we give to others. So when someone says something to me that offends me, and I go off going, oh, no, and they come and say, Pete, I'm really sorry, and you go, Oh, that's all right. I forgive you. But then the next day they come and say the same thing to me. And then they say, sorry. And I go, oh, I forgive you. A week later, it's like, oh, glad this has gone all right. And then they do the same thing again. And, you say, and they say, Pete, I'm really sorry. And you say, I forgive you. We are called to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive, definitely. But forgiveness doesn't have the power to change the other person. Forgiveness doesn't have that power. But God's forgiveness does have the power to make the change. That's what that word, aphesis, it's stronger than forgiveness than we can understand. And perhaps release might be a better word here. Release from sin. Not just forgiveness, a total release from sin. It carries this thought of the captives being chained up and they're being set free from this, this bond that they've got cleaning out the dirty laundry in your life, wiping clean the stained parts of your life. See, Ephesus is forgiveness that means that we can live in freedom, total freedom. I'm sorry, God, and we can live in freedom. We don't need to live with the chains that, that sin sort of ties us up with. Ephesus breaks those chains. We no longer need to live uh, in fear that we'll fall back into an addictive behavior. We don't need to worry about the mistake that we made or the angry outburst that we showed. We don't need to do more to prove who we are or to buy things that justify our existence. Because Ephesus 
is not just a forgiveness, it's a total freedom from sin. Salvation comes from belief in Jesus alone. But I don't know if you've ever figured this out. You probably have because you're smart people. But sin keeps on sticking its head up again and again and again and again. And you go, but God, help. (laughs) And it happens again. If you understand that, then maybe you need to seek this forgiveness, this ephesus. And the way we do that is what John the Baptist is calling us to. He's saying to do that, to get yourself clean, to make yourself free, you need to find a space of repentance. Because repentance leads to obedience, which leads to a renewed life. A new life. And with Christ, that new life is in him. So today, as we prepare for Christmas, the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, to find a renewed life, a life free from the chains of sin, to live in a space of freedom, a thesis. To do so, you might need to do something. Maybe there's something obvious in your life and you know that God's that way and you're facing this way and going, I'm happy going this way. I'm going this way and I know what I'm doing and you know what? I know God's back there and he doesn't like it. Maybe today you need to turn back 180 degrees and go straight to him. Perhaps it's less obvious for you. Perhaps you've sort of felt a little distant from God in the last, well, COVID's hurt, hurt, hurt a fair few people and hit a fair few people over the last few years and maybe that's interrupted your relationship with God. Today, maybe you need to repent of not walking close to him, of turning that 180 degrees now and saying, I come back to you. Maybe it's been complacency for you. Maybe uh, you've decided that church is a once a month thing for you and you go, I'm pretty happy with that. I'm all right with that. And maybe I'll look at it online every now and again, but I'm okay with the once a month. That'll do me. And you've become complacent. Or your Bible sort of gathering dust there or your... your, um, your, your online Bible says uh, the streak of one, not the streak of 20 that you used to have. <laughs> complacency. Maybe today you're walking this way in complacency and you've got to do a 180 and come back to God. Or maybe you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus. Maybe you've never made that commitment to the saving power of Christ. And today you want to experience that freedom that I've been talking about. A freedom that comes from repentance. A freedom that comes from obedience. Today I want to encourage you to seek Jesus yourself. I'm going to leave a minute of silence before I pray so that you're able to seek God in the way that you need to. It might be to be obedient to something God's calling you to do. It might be to stop and repent. Maybe for something big. Maybe for something small, maybe you don't know what that is. Maybe it's just to say, God, I'm here, ready to listen. Or maybe for you, this is new, and you think, something's going on here. I want to encourage you just to seek God in this moment of silence. Ask for forgiveness from him. And I'm going to pray, and then we'll move into a time of communion. So two minutes, just of silence, for your own space. We... 
We thank you that you forgive, but go beyond what we understand forgiveness to be. That you have the power to change our lives. That you set us free. And that you set us forth to live in that freedom. So Lord, I want to pray for anyone today who has felt that they've been stuck in those chains of sin. Stuck in the the void that couldn't get out of. Lord, I pray that through repentance that they may see you afresh. Lord, I want to pray for those who may have been feeling a sense of complacency in their spiritual walk. God, I pray for uh, a a renewed energy, a renewed spiritual vitality, that they may turn back to you, to seek you, to walk alongside you on a daily basis. And our God, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, either in this building or online, Lord, I pray for those people that you will reveal yourself to them right now and that if anyone has asked for you to forgive them, that you will forgive them and help them know that you are very, very real and present to them. God, we give you thanks. Your word is living, it's active. It's that light in the darkness. May we be those people as well. Amen.